The message this morning is on, uh, well, around John the Baptist. It's still a Christmas message. Uh, The birth of John the Baptist is very much intertwined with Christmas. Though you might not know it uh, from from the way we we normally do readings at Christmas. We do a lot of readings uh, in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke for Christmas. Oddly enough, we rarely do we read about uh, John the Baptist. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to focus some attention on, on uh, these events and, and how the role that John the Baptist plays. I'll share something that, very mundane thing this week that kind of tipped me off to something. I was getting a picture for the bulletin cover. That's what, that's what happens around Christmas. So I'm looking at pictures. And um, I really liked the ones for last Sunday and Christmas Eve. I thought they were subtle. I wanted to match that. So I went to the website where we bought those and put in Christmas and John the Baptist. Mm-hmm. Nothing came up. I was really surprised. Christmas and John the Baptist, how does nothing come up? It's more than half of the first chapter of Luke is about John the Baptist. And nothing came up. So then I left that site and I just started to generally search for Christmas and John the Baptist on the web. And any pictures that I found looked like the one on your cover. A thousand years old. Now, I know this one's not a thousand, but it's because it's in English. But they're still trying to cater to kind of a thousand year old. It's a very Eastern Orthodox perspective. And I thought, how is it that we, you know, we have six million pictures of three wise men and camels and silhouettes of Bethlehem and shepherds and stars in the east. And what is well more than half of the first chapter of Luke and tightly intertwined with the birth story of Christ, John the Baptist, I couldn't find a picture of it. I could not find a modern Picture of it. You know, just notice the parallelisms. So after the introduction in Luke, you get to the birth of John the Baptist foretold, and then you get the birth of Jesus foretold. Then you get the conception of John the Baptist and the conception of Mary, which obviously means the birth of John the Baptist and the birth of Mary. You get two songs, the Magnificat, and then the the song of Zechariah, which we'll look at this morning. I mean, that is, good job, Luke for presenting that to the church. And yet, somehow, John the Baptist has maybe been extracted from our habit pattern at Christmas. I figured it's because he's a sidekick, which is, uh, you know, I get that. My goal this morning is not to make more of John the Baptist than we ought to. He's a sidekick. But I even found myself, at one point I said, well, other sidekicks get Christmas pictures. And I was convinced. I, I was a burn in my saddle. I, I'll show you. R2-D2 has Christmas cards. Now, if you think about this, he is a sidekick of a sidekick. And he has Christmas cards in John the Baptist. You have to go like a thousand years old or at least make it look like a thousand years old. Batman and Robin. Robin had a Christmas card. Mike Wazowski has a Christmas card. In all my searching, I found one Christmas card of John the Baptist. This is it. Merry Christmas, you brood of vipers. Now repent. 
which it's a joke. I actually think it's about the funniest joke. Please don't send this to your, uh, you can send it to me. I would think this is funny, okay? Uh, but that is the only thing I found on John the Baptist for Christmas. That was modern. What is his place? I'm telling you this because I don't want you to think this morning that I'm digging into some obscure passage to talk about a trivial idea and then leap, make leaps and bounds to connect it to Jesus. I'm in the first, we are in the first chapter of Luke this morning. As we read about the prophecy out of the mouth of Zechariah. And so I want to invite you into uh, a little bit of the story of the forerunner of Christ, the one whom God called to make straight the path of the Lord. We're going to begin it in the 67th verse. which is not the prophecy itself, but I want to talk to it a little bit. This is what it says. It says, And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, singing, saying, it's actually, he could say singing. It's a song, by the way. It's, most people believe it's a hymn. It's a beautiful picture of a man who in faithlessness was made mute by the Lord. And then when he finally said his name is John, he breaks forth in song. That's a... Kind of, it's a beautiful image. But what I want to point to is he was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied saying, it says. Filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. In other words, verses 68 through 79 are spirit-filled verses. Now, you might say to me, well, what's, I mean, what is verse 57 or verse 4? Is chopped liver? I mean, if this is spirit-filled, what's everything else? It's all scripture is God-breathed. All scripture is God-breathed. But when something is assigned to the category of prophecy, it's a little bit different. And let me explain. For normal scripture, I'm just, this is just generally how the church views it, certainly how I view uh, how the scriptures came to be. The Lord works through human authors to write scripture. The inspiration and revelation of God is pushed through the lens of a human author. So that what we receive let's call it the gospel of Luke, is the true account, God has ensured us the true account and revelation of himself as seen and understood by Luke. So it's true, but Luke is in it. And you, can, you, can, you know Luke's in it. Luke and Acts sound like Luke. Paul sounds like Paul. Matthew sounds like Matthew. In other words, God is not trying to shy away from the residue of human authorship. He's allowing it to play a role. And he's showing himself in it. But when the Holy Spirit comes in somebody and they prophesy, it's a little bit different. Here, this is not the personality of Zechariah that's being made known. God is speaking through him purely as a conduit. When God speaks in a prophetic way like this, the person is set aside and his mouth is used, but his personality is not, the teaching is not reliant on his personality. The teaching is not pushing through his personality. This is why with many prophecies, the Lord speaks in the first person. I, the Lord, 
The Lord speaks as though he's speaking himself, his very mouth, through the prophet. Now, I mentioned this. I suppose we could have talked about this any other Sunday we dealt with any other prophecy. But the reason I want to point it out here is because the truth that shows up in verses 6 to 8 to 79, you, it is a coherent, clear, pristine gospel that's going to be given to us in the Christ child is still in the womb, most likely. And I don't want you to think, wow, Zechariah is a very insightful person. God is speaking. God is giving us the good news, the hope of Christ, right here in front of the birth of Christ. He's preparing the way in quite beautiful fashion. Things are going to come out of the mouth of Zechariah that the apostles did not even get until after the resurrection of Christ. It is a pristine order of understanding. And uh, once again, I find myself saying, where has this been all my life? I'm going to read verses 68 to 75. The song has, you might call it two verses, the first verse is 68 to 75, and the second verse is the following. I want to read the first verse to you, and we'll kind of walk through it thought by thought. Here's the song. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Now that's one sentence in the English. In the Greek, likely the entire song is one sentence. So there's a lot of thoughts. And what I want to do is I want to flow thought by thought and just connect them so that we see a development of thinking and and a development of an idea, which is the gospel. So here's the first thought, verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. The song begins with a conclusion, a declaration, a pronouncement. The song begins with, The Lord should be blessed. We should bless the Lord. And everything that's going to follow in this first verse of the song goes to explain why the Lord is blessed. So the following thoughts of 69 through 75 contribute to the the pronouncement of blessed be the Lord God. And I, I, I would add to this that this is the conclusion, this is the right conclusion of the gospel of Jesus Christ, is worship. When we rightly understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, the result is worship. We should get to the end of the gospel and say, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Blessed is his name. Guilt is not the byproduct of the gospel. Shame is not the byproduct of the gospel. Anxiety is not the byproduct. Judgmentalism is not the byproduct. Pride is not the byproduct. Worship is the byproduct of the gospel. 
If there's no worship, you either do not know the gospel or you do not understand the gospel or you have rejected the gospel. So we could say, I suppose we could put this question in after that first phrase, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, we should say, why? Why is he blessed? This is what God says. For he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Now, there's two things being said here. The first one is he's visited and redeemed and saved his people, right? He's visited and redeemed his people and raised up a horn of salvation for them. That's an idea, okay? This saving theme that why is he worthy to be blessed? Because he's rescued us. Then there's a second thought, and and the second thought is, and it's occurred in the house of David, which that idea sort of holds to the one that's going to follow it, so we'll deal with it in a second. But the third great idea is, he's visited us, he's redeemed us, and he's saved us. I think those words are familiar to us. What I think is interesting here is, he says them in the past tense. Do you notice that? He has visited us. He has redeemed us. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us. It's quite possible Christ is in the womb. Even later in in this song, the Lord is aware of the tense in the time. Look at verse 76. And you, child, speaking of John the Baptist, will be called the prophet of the Most High. See the future tense there? You, child. It's not like the song was written later on in Zechariah's life and he's looking back reflectively. He's looking down at the child and the Lord is prophesying through him. And at the same time saying, he has redeemed us and you, child, will go before him and be his prophet and declare his salvation for all people for he will come. I suppose we could say it's a device that minimizes it so much. So this is what I think the Lord is doing, right? It's the Lord speaking, remember that. Lord speaking. This is what I think happens. When the Lord, it's a great thought. When the Lord begins to move towards something, it's already done. That's it. That's how this language is coming out. When the Lord sets his mind on something, it might as well already be done. What can come between the God's intention that would stop it? Nothing. We could, I suppose, get into that mental thing of God's outside of time. Maybe that's all part of it. I think at the essence is, maybe God's outside of time because time is an irrelevant concept to a God who's all-powerful. So if he sets his mind on something, he might as well think of it as already have happened. You and I, by the way, we do this about the Lord. We live in this quite comfortably. We don't always feel the irony. Sometimes we refer to the church as our life in Christ is the already and the not yet. We're, we're testifying to this reality when we say that. We're saying we are already redeemed. We already belong to God. 
We're already his, even though we're not yet his. But the boast of the church is, what can come between that? Can famine or darkness or sword? Any form of persecution? Can anything separate us from the love of God? That's the thought is, we can speak as though it has already happened because of our confidence in his power. And you might say, well, that's because Christ is dead and resurrected. That's why we have that confidence. I think for the Lord, when God sets his intention on something, the Son has already done it. There's no, it's not like the Lord's going, oh, I hope Jesus does this. That's why we can say we're saved. Why do we say that in the past tense? I think it's right to say it in the past tense because we are supremely confident in the power of God. That what he has done what he has set in motion will bear fruit. I've been contemplating on this throughout the week and it it created in me a place of conviction and then this great, and then I thought, Lord, it's good news because I'm kind of a bad news preacher. Lord, it's good news. And then came this wave of encouragement. The conviction came on me of why do I demand that the Lord Show me, if I know his will, why can't that be enough? If the Lord has set his mind and intention on doing something, why can I not spring on it? Knowing he'll do it. Assuming it's a past event. Why am I so cautious to say, I think that's what you want to do, but I just need to see you do it four times. Five. Let's make it six and call it even. Just do it six times. And then, why is that? If it's God's will, it should be done. So that was the conviction. And then I hit this wave of encouragement that if it's God's will to work in me, to make me a new man, it's done. That's good, Christian. Think of it. If God has set his mind on you, has put his spirit in you, has sent his son for you, has died for you, and is working in you to make you new, what must he see you as? As already done. That's my prayer, at least to the Lord, for the day can you see me? Can you speak of me as though I'm in the past tense? But you see it in scripture. He calls us saints and glorious ones and co-heirs with Christ, sons of God. I'm very encouraged by that. I know it's, it's, a, it's a device, it's a rhetorical device of God to display his power. If I say it, it's done. I find great encouragement in that. He's visited us. He's redeemed us. He's raised the horn of salvation from us. And then the teaching says, and he's done it in the house of David, which holds on to the next thought. Listen, as He spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets of old. In other words, one could say, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Someone will say, why? He would say, because he's visited us and he's redeemed us and he's raised his horn of salvation from us. And he would say, and not only has he done it, but he said he was going to do it a long time ago and he's done it. In other words, our redemption and our salvation have been expected. 
We should have seen it coming. That's what he's saying. To which someone might say, well, what, what did they say? What did the prophets say? That we should be saved from our enemies, verse 71. And from the hand of all who hate us. That's what they said. That we should be saved from our enemies and from the hands of all who hate us. That's the redemption of God. Now this is the rub. This is, this is the spot. This is the spot where we miss the gospel or we catch the gospel. This is the spot where most of Israel missed it. Who is your enemy? Mm. When Israel, when Israel thought that the story of God was about them, they looked with their eyes at their enemies to figure out who their enemies are. But this, this book is not about Israel. It's bigger than Israel. The redemptive story of God did not start with Abraham. The redemptive story of God began in the cool of the day when he met with Adam. He came to Adam and Eve. And right there began the process of laying down the groundwork for redemption. God's work has always been bigger than Israel. Israel has been an instrument in the hands of God to display his will and his purpose. What I'm saying is, is when we think that the story of redemption is about us, it's about us, and we're told we're going to save us from our enemies, we fall into the classic fashion of Israel to look out with our eyes and decide who our enemies are. And that's what they did. Their expectation in the Old Testament was that God would come and rescue them from their socio-political enemies, from the, the Romans or whoever it happened to be, with the, the flavor of the month as far as empires go. Their assumption was is that when God comes, he'll be an earthly king and he'll, res- he'll save them, redeem them from that enemy. The story is bigger than that. Now, for the purposes now, this song is going to double back on that idea and give it greater clarity. So I'm saying more now than maybe is present here. But we're going to go through a twist that would be confusing, and then the song will return to that idea. So for now, let me suggest that your enemy is sin and death. That is your enemy. That is all of our enemy, sin and death. It's not you, it's sin and death. I mean, you're not my enemy. Sin and death is my enemy. Let me just suggest that now. Use that as a placeholder and we'll... It'll grow up in a second. In other words, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Why? Because he's visited us and he's redeemed us and he's raised his horn of salvation for us. And he said he was going to do it. He did what he said he was going to do from a long time ago. Well, what did he say? He said he was going to rescue us from our enemies. The next question might be, well, why would he do that? 72. To show the mercy promised to our fathers. 
and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. Why is God going to redeem us? Why is God going to save us? Why has God visited us? Because of his mercy and his promise. That's it. God has mercy and God is true to his word. He said he would do it. God is not saving us because we're worthy of being saved. God is not saving us because we'll labor hard for him and and make it worth it. God's not saving us because you have a a talent or a gift that he needs that you'll, you'll enable the kingdom in a uniquely special way. God is not saving us for any of those reasons. God is saving us because he's merciful. God is full of mercy. Tender mercy. It's mercy that put Jesus on the cross. And it is his word that put Jesus on the cross. God is merciful and he promised it. That's why he's saving us. To which we might ask, well, why is he saving us? What does he want from us? To which the word says in 73, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. God is saving us to restore us in right relationship with him. That's it. That we would not be scared of him. Or that we wouldn't serve him out of fear, like a fearful God. Like a God you'd sacrifice a child to. Or a God you'd, in a panicked rage, put the last fruit in your house out so that maybe your wife would bear children. He's not that kind of God. He's a God who's so full of mercy. He loves you. He wants you to know he loves you. So that you can worship him in holiness and righteousness. That's what it says. Now this statement. So that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness. Is the first twist that brings me back to what exactly is my enemy? Because if my enemy is an external nation or tribe or people group that's coming against me, how does destroying them or saving me from them have anything to do with my holiness and righteousness? Just think of it yourself. Pick some, even if you can't think of an enemy right now, imagine you have a cruel tyrant of a boss. If the Lord were to snuff him out, would that make you more holy or righteous? Would that spur you to greater holiness and righteousness? No. This is the first time, right, that I'm, I feel a crease. As though if I were to assume that my enemies were you or others or something I see with these eyes, if I were to assume that, this would get curious because why would save me from that make me holy and righteous? This first verse is the gospel. You might say, well, it's missing Jesus' death and resurrection. Yeah, but you could stand at the empty tomb and you could point a finger into that hole and you could say, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. For he's visited us and redeemed us, raised his horn of salvation for us. As he said he would do, 
through the prophets of old. And he's done it because of his great mercy and because he's true to his word so that we can worship him in, in holiness and in righteousness. You could do that. This is the heart of the gospel. The death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, that is the event of power that gives us bold assurance. But this is the purpose. And that's verse one of the song. Verse two, it's as though the prophet wanes, not, not that he turns his attention from God, but turns his perspective from God down to this child. So it's blessed be the Lord, God of Israel. And verse two is in you, child. Let me read it. And you, child, will be called prophet of the most high. For you will go before the Lord and prepare his way to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, there it is again, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. That word is dayspring in some Bibles. The sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. This second verse follows a similar pattern. Verse one, blessed be the Lord God because he's come to save us, which the prophets declared. Verse two, and you, John, are a prophet who will go and declare this. In other words, the prophets long ago made this declaration that this would happen. And now, John, you will do it immediately in front of. They called John the forerunner. That's what the early church called him. You will run immediately in front of the Christ, heralding the same salvation coming. And so, in other words, it's been long anticipated, but now it's actually happening, and you will make straight the path. The prophets of old did it, and the prophet now will do it. There's the connection. It's almost as though, if this were verse 1 and verse 2, you can just take them and fold them. There's this, anticip- the prophets said it was going to happen. The prophet now says it was going to happen. And then if you follow down, you see this, this next idea. For you will go before the Lord and prepare his ways. Now listen, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Earlier, he brings salvation. And we said, what is salvation? To be rescued from our enemies and from the hands of those who hate us. Here, what is salvation? What is the knowledge of salvation? The forgiveness of our sins. By this point, it is clarified the, the old anticipation, the old mistaken anticipation was that God was gonna come and fix our external problems. The new correct anticipation is the problem is in you. The enemy is in you. Your human nature is at enmity with the Holy Father. And God has come to fix that. This is the rub of the gospel. This is where the gospel is missed, and this is where the gospel is caught. People want to, I know it, I'm a people, we want to assume that there is the problem. 
If it weren't for that, I would be this. If it weren't for him, I would have done that. If it wasn't for this blight or that sin or that, all of these, we're, it, it's so comfortable to be the victim or to have an excuse or some kind of justification for why you fall short or why you're not enough. It's that enemy. And the Lord is saying, it is not that enemy that puts you in peril. That enemy may put you in discomfort. That enemy may put you in ill consequence, but your soul puts you in peril. And you are an enemy of God. Unless he comes and makes peace. This is why you should forgive. Do you understand this, Christian? This is, we gotta, we gotta close our eyes or, you know, I always thought if my eye causes me to sin, gouge it out. I used to think it was because of lust because that's like my hobby sin. If my eye continually causes me to think that the problem is out there, I should gouge it out. God is coming to us to save us. Earlier we said why, and it said in verse 72, to show the mercy. If now, right after verse 77, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins, and we said why, 78 would say because of the tender mercy of our God. God's tender mercy. God desires that we would serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness by the tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise shall visit us. This makes me wonder, by the way, this may be the only line in a Christmas hymn that comes from John the Baptist is, O come thou day spring, come and cheer our spirits by thy advent here. This day spring. And may we shut our eyes to the things outside so that we can see the light. May we make it dark so that we can see the light of Christ. May we own, may we own the great work God has to do into us. May we allow him to come in and to wage war and to redeem and to save us. Lord, may you come visit us. to guide our feet into the way of peace. That's why the Lord is to be blessed. It's because he is a maker of peace. Amen. Let me pray. Lord, I pray, I pray for the, if there's a dark soul in here, I pray you would bring light to it. Not through guilt and shame, but through conviction. Lord, speak a good word in the name of Jesus. Speak a good word to this person. That you are willing to forgive them of so much. If, you, if they would but let you in, if they would but desire the peace you have to bring. Lord, I pray that you would abolish fearfulness of God as though you were angry with us.
Lord, I pray that we would see your anger as set against the enemy, which is sin and death. So, Lord, I pray for each person here, we would not give quarter to those things. We would not create a home for those things, Lord. I confess, Lord, it's hard, but we, and I pray for the people of God, we desire holiness and we desire righteousness, Lord. We desire that in us, your peace would reign. And we know it will happen because you said it has happened. Blessed be the Lord, God of Israel. Amen.